0: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and I'm pleased to welcome Gilda Daniels, associate professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law and a civil rights attorney for the last 30 years, to discuss her new book, Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America, published by New York University Press in 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Gilda. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Your book suggests that contemporary actions by states requiring voter ID, instituting voter purges, or disenfranchising felons constitute a crisis of democracy, and one that should remind us of poll taxes, literacy tests, and grandfather clauses from the 19th and 20th centuries. You don't see these new laws as a coincidence, but, but a premeditated legal strategy to disenfranchise voters of color. And your book, which really interestingly combines law and history and democratic theory, sometimes a little oral history, it, you know, assumes that we're asleep at the wheel at a time that calls for vigilance. And, and the book aims to reveal the extent and the methods of disenfranchisement so that the nation might act. So these laws are often presented as preventing fraud, and those who oppose them are cast as partisan or not concerned enough with um, legality. So let, let's start with why you think we have a crisis and whether these laws are about fraud, partisanship or discrimination.
1: Well, thank you, Susan. I'm really excited about speaking to you today and certainly uh, talking about the book. And I appreciate um, uh, you know being asked to talk today one of the things that I think we have to keep in mind in regards to uh, our country is that we tend to have a system of disenfranchisement more than we have a system of democracy. Uh, in the history of our country, we, we began with the founding fathers determining that only white men who own property should have the right to vote. And it has been a fight to vote for the right to vote, certainly from that point uh, to this one. Um, we've had a, a, a 100 year span, right, from all men are created equal and the Three Fifths Compromise that essentially said that persons who were enslaved uh, would count as less of a person than whites. Uh, and we go from all men are created equal and the Three Fifths Compromise to the passage of the Civil War amendments in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, where we, you know, Thirteenth Amendment freed the slaves. Fourteenth Amendment gives us equal protection under the laws, and Fifteenth Amendment said you cannot discriminate based on race. Uh, and those systems that were then in 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 place, and, and having the Fifteenth Amendment and being allowed to to register and vote, newly enfranchised uh, black men took that um, new right uh and registered and ran for office and changed their communities in meaningful ways in and, and in a few short years that was met with um voter suppress voter suppression and violence right we had poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, felon disenfranchisement uh violence um and uh terrorism uh in uh in uh, black communities and uh certainly in communities that uh were voting against certainly white supremacy in the south and so we have that system that's uh certainly um began in the the, the turn of the 20th century that had a, a, a system that was committed to disenfranchising uh Black voters, and that continued certainly throughout the throughout the 20th century, uh, from the passage of the Civil War Amendments to the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, where many of the disenfranchising mechanisms um, were addressed in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and so while the names of these disenfranchising devices may have changed. Uh, while we may not call it a grandfather clause today uh, or a literacy test, uh, but maybe it's proof of citizenship or uh, voter voter ID. Uh, the names have changed, uh, but the impact or result of these disenfranchising methods remain the same, and that is uh, to eliminate the numbers of um, voters of color. Uh, So I don't think the names matter as much as we look at what these uh, disenfranchising methods are intended to do and how they go about doing it. And that this is, again, not something that is new. It's something that is certainly a part of our history in this
0: country. So some people would push back and say, no, it's about partisanship. It's it's about uh, Democrats versus Republicans. But This book does not buy that in any way. Can you just say a little bit more about how this is targeted and it is targeted at voters of color? Well,
1: those in power have often used um, party, political party as a proxy for race. Uh, We saw that during Reconstruction, during the period of Reconstruction, where if you voted as a Republican or registered as a Republican, that could cost you your life. It could cost you your livelihood, um, right? And because of of the economic terrorism and the actual terrorism that um, was certainly on display during that time in our history. Um, So it's important to know that the the purpose, the stated purpose, certainly at the time of, of, of Reconstruction when the states had to adopt new state constitutions in order to re-enter the union, they had as their sole purpose. They declared that they were going to institute rules in regards to voting that would eliminate the Negro from the voter rolls, and they did so um, with uh, with 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 great success. Um, in Alabama, in 1890, 140,000 Black men were registered to vote. But in 1906, only 46. In Alabama, in 1890, 140,000 Black men were registered to vote. But in 1906, only 46 Black persons were registered to vote in the state. That number, that decline from 140,000 to 46 was due to the poll taxes, literacy tests and grandfather clauses that uh, were implemented in that short time period, in that less than 20 year time period. And while they may while while the effect was that uh, it was it, it impacted mostly Republican registrants, it was because blacks were registering as Republicans at that time, mm-hmm. and therefore they use that as an as an opportunity to to remove blacks from the voter rolls. And we see now that blacks are predominantly Democratic registrants and Democratic voters. That to say, oh, it's not race; it's party. Well, they're only using party as a, a proxy for race, and the impact is that. These measures, proof of citizenship laws, impact people of color and, 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 t- and tends to eliminate them from the voter rolls. And to the extent that we are predominantly registered in the Democratic Party, it is an impact on, it is a racial impact that is, that is clear and that is consistent with uh, certainly the history of our country.
0: So you mentioned the Civil War amendments, and I I think that the book makes so clear how at the end of the Civil War we see this very stark language put directly into the Constitution, and within the decade we see how these rules, grandfather clauses, poll taxes, literacy, is able to reduce these numbers as you just so dramatically um, uh, recounted for us. Let's talk a little bit about the moment when – The legislature tries to change that with the Voting Rights Act um, and so that we can um, move us. One of the things I like the most about this book, sorry I interrupted my own self, is is the way it moves between the history, the law, and the present politics in order to connect them all. And your uh, section on the Voting Rights Act and the Supreme Court case dealing with Shelby County And taking us between Selma, Shelby, and the Voting Rights Act is just brilliant, especially the ways you use some firsthand accounts um, to tell the story. But let's talk about the Voting Rights Act and what it was aiming to do and what has happened to the Voting Rights Act now in our time. Well, the Voting Rights Act is considered a
1: monumental piece of legislation, and it certainly had... A great impact, as we've said before, uh, certainly during the 20th century, um, the efforts to remove uh, blacks from the voter rolls was widespread, certainly throughout the South uh, and other parts of the other parts of the country, but certainly throughout the South and Southwest for for voters of voters of color Um, and literacy tests coal taxes, um, grandfather clauses, right? Laws that said that you could vote if your grandfather was able to vote essentially prior to the passage of the 15th amendment, which gave the right to vote or restriction right. that said you could not, um, uh, that you couldn't discriminate based on race. And so those kinds of, as Dr. King called them, conniving methods were utilized and, had the impact of not allowing Blacks to register in large scale, particularly in the South. For example, in March of 1965 in Mississippi, only 6.7% of Blacks were registered to vote. Less than 7% of Blacks were registered to vote in the state of Mississippi in March of 1965. and That's compared to 70% of Whites. In Alabama, the number was less than 20 percent of blacks were registered to vote in, 19, in March of 1965, compared to 70 percent, approximately 70 percent of whites. Uh, in Louisiana, the number was less than 31 percent of blacks were registered to vote. Mm-hmm. And so and all this was happening in March of 1965. And you have these low rates of uh, registration amongst blacks because they're, they are banned from, the, from voter registration uh and um with the, the the passage of the uh voting rights act um we start to see those numbers improve dramatically but we don't get to the voting rights act without selma right and it because uh certainly civil rights uh civil rights leaders were advocating for a uh Certainly, civil rights leaders were advocating for action on on the the ways in which blacks were being prohibited from registering to vote. I give you in the book an example, real life examples of uh, people, Miss Myrtle Pless Jones, who was a college graduate and had her master's degree from Michigan State University, and was got married and was living in, Alabama, in Montgomery, Alabama, went to register to vote. And she was asked, before she could register, she had to take a test. And the test was how many bubbles are in a bar of soap.
0: Right. And, and- right. It's, it's hard to believe. It really is. The examples that you give in the book are so compelling. And I know we know these, we know these statistics, but the, the use of the oral history is great because it just, it just reminds you of how ridiculous this is.
1: And how widespread. Right. Because I think Oprah says everyone has a story and I say that everybody has a voting story. Right. Mm-hmm. The fact that these the people, the people who are in the book are people I know. Right. Certainly in that in that chapter of the book, I I, I give you stories from my father-in-law and from my colleague's um, mother. Right. And so there are people, people who people who are in relationship with one another and, and to be African-American living in the South Certainly at that time, you, you were impacted by these laws and if they um, are, you can see them mirrored in certainly these voter registration uh, numbers. I also I use this as a sort of timeline, my uh, grandmother in the book. And she was born in 1919, which is the year, right, that the right to vote was given to to women right? 1920, the year that uh, uh, passed the uh, constitutional amendments for the right to vote for women. However, she did not vote until after the passage of, this, of the Voting Rights Act for the first time because she was an African-American who, woman who lived in the South. Although women got the right to vote in the year, certainly the year she was born, she had to wait 40 years before she could cast a ballot. So having laws, even having the 15th Amendment, having the 19th Amendment, did not mean that uh, blacks and p- other people of color, certainly Latinx people in the Southwest, uh, the uh, Puerto Ricans in New York had to pass a literacy test in the 1960s before they could cast a ballot. Right. So the Voting Rights Act uh, outlawed those uh, types of mechanisms um, to provide uh Access to provide access to uh, to to voter registration, and so and ultimately to the to remove barriers to the ballot box. So, the Voting Rights Act actually has had certainly um, two primary parts, and that was Section Two and 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 Section Five. Section Two is a nationwide prohibition against uh, discrimination in voting, Uh, and Section Five required. Um, jurisdictions, what they called, which they called, um, cover jurisdictions, to get approval of any voting changes prior to their implementation. So the the term was pre-clearance. So the uh, covered jurisdictions, which was primarily the South, certainly in 1965, after the passage of the. Um, voting Rights Act was primarily the South, and, main, and, and remained primarily the South throughout the life of uh, Section Five. That had to submit any voting change, anything from moving a polling place to across the street to a, a congressional redistricting, had to be uh, approved by the federal government to ensure that it did not place voters of color in a worse position, um, and uh, or, or did not retrogress was the standard. Uh, And the having that measure of oversight certainly um, was was necessary to ensure that these kinds of devices or conniving methods would not um, not continue, certainly at the level that they had uh, during the first half of the of the 20th century.
0: And do you want to say a little bit about how Shelby County, the more recent Supreme Court case, gutted that requirement and um, and 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 reversed this need for these counties that had a long history of discrimination to clear or to pre-clear any changes? Uh, absolutely. So we had we had
1: great gains after the passage of the Voter Rights Act. Just as after the passage of the 15th Amendment, right, you had these large numbers of uh, blacks registering to vote and participating in the electoral process. After the Voting Rights Act um, was uh, passed, you saw um, the registration rates in particular of blacks, almost in um, in parity with those of whites in places like Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana, right? So those so those voter registration rates um, certainly um, were uh, on par, and those barriers to voter registration, like having to take a literacy test, <laughs> had been removed, uh, and therefore you saw great increases. You also increase you also saw increases in uh, the numbers of black elected officials, as and, and, and other people of color in uh, in the South and and, and throughout the country, um, that the uh, Voting Rights Act certainly led to increased uh, representation by people of color, uh, as well as the as well as registration and um, participation. We saw certainly since the Voting Rights Act that we essentially we essentially have these cycles of voter suppression. You know, I see, I say, and these cycles generally last. In <laughs> what I've seen, they're like 100 year cycles, from founding fathers to Civil War mm-hmm. amendments. It's about 100 years from Civil War amendments to Voting Rights Act it is. Uh, About 100 years. So we're going now from Voting Rights Act to where we are today is about 55 years. And we've seen uh, great advances. We have these cycles of great progress and then we have these cycles of regress. So certainly the Voting Rights Act was put us on this cycle of great progress where we actually certainly may have reached the height when we had the election of uh, Barack Obama, where you had, you know, large-scale, you know, uh, voter registration rates as well as voter participation within communities of color. Shortly after that election, we start seeing the cycles of regression, uh, where we see the institution of measures such as restrictive voter ID. uh, And we also start... To see pushback in regards to um, federal oversight by jurisdictions, there were a, 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 there were challenges to Section Five's uh, authority or constitutionality. Uh, certainly, after Barack Obama, there were there were certainly challenges right after the Voting Rights Act was passed in South Carolina versus Katzenbach, but we had the Northwest. Um, um, but the, the Mundo case, but we, but we had the, the Mundo case and then the Shelby County versus Holder cases that both sought to find um, Section 5 of the act unconstitutional. Shelby County versus Holder actually succeeded. It did not find that Section 5 was unconstitutional, but found that the triggering um, mechanism or the triggering formula in section four of the act was outdated. That formula said that any jurisdiction that had um, a disenfranchising device like a literacy test and that had less than 50% of its eligible citizens registered had what's considered a covered jurisdiction. So, it Section Four said essentially defined what a covered jurisdiction was, and then and Section Five said that those covered jurisdictions had to get pre-clearance of any changes. Shelby County said that the that the triggering mechanism was outdated, and found Section Four unconstitutional, and. As a consequence, there's no more Section Five. <laughs> so the so those covered jurisdictions: Alabama, Georgia, parts of North Carolina, parts of Florida, all of Louisiana, all of Texas, right? Those all of South Carolina, right? Those you know, f- formerly Confederate states, and certainly those states that are. Um, uh, Primarily in the South and had those devices prior to um, 1965, uh, and was and continued to be covered in 2013. Were no longer required to submit their voting changes, and what we have seen, certainly so on the day that um, Shelby County versus Holder was decided, um, states like Texas said we are now going to implement uh, our restrictive voter ID. Okay, mm-hmm. and this was a voter ID that was that was being litigated, that it had submitted to the D.C. District Court instead of the Attorney General uh, in order to to get it pre-cleared or approved. Um, but, we, but the Texas voter ID law went through years after Section 5 was no longer viable. We then used Section 2 to challenge uh, changes that were certainly discriminatory. And there were at least three federal courts that found the Texas voter ID law intentionally discriminatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that we, the court found there were more than 600,000 black and brown people who did not have the type of voter ID that Texas said was necessary in order to cast a ballot. Texas said you could use a... Driver's license, military ID, or I think it was a hunting license or gun license, but not a student ID, and not other forms of uh, voting, uh, not other forms of identification, in order to cast a ballot. But more than six hundred thousand Black and Brown people did not have that; those forms of ID, and therefore would not be allowed to cast a ballot. So at this point, there's not registration that that is, which was is not registration that's being attacked. It's the actual casting of the ballot. So in the 1960s, it was, we're not even going to let you register. So post-Voting Rights Act, okay, we'll let you register, but we're going to make it much harder for you to actually cast the ballot. Now, we saw that happening not only in Texas, we saw that happening in Georgia. We see that happening in in, in North Carolina, right? North Carolina had this large omnibus uh, litigation where they essentially said, now, how, how do people of color young people and even elderly people access the right to vote those are the things that we're going to say you can no longer do things like having um expand or expanding things like expanding um early voting and they had early voting uh on Sundays and they said well um African-American churches use that as what was called the souls to the polls day, get the church, get on church buses and let's go vote. So they eliminated Sunday (laughs) early voting. Uh, North Carolina eliminated same day registration where if you had not registered, you could go to the polls on election day, register and cast a ballot the same day because that was being used because that's being utilized, they said, we're going to have to eliminate that. Courts found that that was intentionally discriminatory and said that it was using, that it used surgical precision, essentially in determining Mm -hmm. what mechanisms were being used by people of color and, um, and citing those or removing those, right. Which is certainly clearly, clearly um, voter suppression. So you certainly saw after Shelby that, Jurisdictions, you know, since they did not have any oversight, felt that they could do whatever um, discriminatory and suppressive measure they could envision. Uh, and it is and without Section 5, which would pause those kinds of uh, changes where those changes could not go into effect until they had been approved by the uh, federal government. Uh, now we have to litigate those. And it's and it's after the legislation and after it's been implemented. So, though, and the average life of a Section 2 case mm-hmm. is about three years and the cost is more than a million dollars. So, for example, in Texas, you had three years of this restrictive voter ID that was um, barring more than half a million people, more than half a million black and brown people from casting a ballot it was in effect for three years, <laughs> whereas with Section 5, it never would have gone into effect.
0: Which you can see the importance of even increasingly given the margins in 2016 in various states. So margins were, were far smaller than 600,000 votes in some of the battleground states. So you can really see how this would have a very, very practical effect on who, who is in office.
1: Can I also say, Susan, that that's one of the reasons why I think my book is important, <laughs> because I think people were looking at voter ID separately from felon disenfranchisement or from some other disenfranchising mechanism. And what, certainly what I proposed in the book is that, hey, we need to look at all of these things. So it's 600,000 people in Texas, but it's 1.3 million people in Florida. It's you know five hundred thousand people in North Carolina, right? And so when you're thinking about you know these these disenfranchising mechanisms, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we when we say we only need to address if we just fix voter ID, then we'll be okay, because it, it'll be called something different tomorrow, right? And it's not just voter ID; it is really this aggregate of. Um, Devices that we need to pay attention to, and that we need to, you know, continue to
0: embark upon dismantling, dismantling them. No, I think that's very clear throughout the book that there is there there is a timing here that is essential. And and actually, I think since the publication of the book, the book has become even more relevant. Which was, I have to say, I started reading this and thought, well, this couldn't be more relevant. And then, as I was thinking about COVID nineteen and the fights that we're seeing in the last few months over mail in balloting, especially during the Wisconsin primaries, or the call in by the Texas Attorney General um, Ken Paxton, I think, who warned local officials against encouraging vote by mail due to COVID nineteen, saying that you know he he would investigate it potentially as fraud. So this question about making access easier or harder is it was important when you wrote the book, but I actually think COVID-19 seems to have even changed that. I don't know if you have other thoughts on that. Well, I th- I think that um, certainly
1: the all of the noise around vote by mail is very interesting and consistent with our history, right? We've had vote by mail or certainly the opportunity to use absentee balloting, which is what vote by mail is, um, since the Civil War, <laughs> and when um, you know soldiers were able to use it, it wasn't an issue. We've used it in other world wars, right, to allow certainly our um, troops to cast ballots in elections uh, while they served. Um, vote by mail has not become a problem until it was being extended to Black and Brown people. Uh, we've uh, when it's primarily uh vote by mail absentee balloting is u- is used by elderly whites um with covid-19 and certainly the focus on public health and safety uh, the cdc has recommended that we expand vote by mail capabilities uh within the states as well as expand other measures like Increasing early voting to 30 days, as opposed to some places where it's only a week or two weeks. Um, So the expansion of the franchise um, has only become an issue because (laughs) we are potentially Mm -hmm. providing additional ways in which all people, but particularly people of color, can access the ballot box. And you see this pushback, even from the highest levels of government, where you see the president of the United States saying he's against vote by mail, even though he participates in it. He votes absentee in um, uh, votes in Florida, but he's against absentee balloting because he says that Republicans, it doesn't it doesn't end well for Republicans. Well, it doesn't it, it's I don't know, you know, what he's referring to, but what it does do is expand the numbers of persons who can cast ballots. And so you actually see, we actually would begin to see what democracy should look like, which where everybody actually has a real opportunity to participate in the electoral process and to participate on an equal basis. Um, so, all and and you know this this the pushback on vote by mail is all about power. The people in power want to maintain that, and if they they see vote by mail and and other measures uh, to expand uh, access to the ballot as a threat to their power, and therefore they're pushing back on those measures.
0: Let me circle back to something that comes a little bit earlier in the book about. Um, purges? Because we're, again, now, since you wrote the book, hearing more about about voting purges. Um, The Brennan Center has been very concerned with recent voter purges. Again, thinking forward towards the 2020 primaries and the general election in November. How have purges worked in the past? and, And how is this different or the same in the purges that we're seeing currently in the states?
1: Purges in the past, so much like the um, purge that was a purge that I referenced earlier with, with Alabama in 1906, right? removing people for uh, various reasons from the um, from the voter rolls. Um, we see purges uh, today. For example, in Georgia, we saw uh, then secretary then Secretary of State and now Governor. Brian Kemp implemented an exact match law um, where in that instance, voter registration applications were flagged. Um, if the voters identifying information failed to match state records down to such kind of you matters as missing hyphens and transposed letters. And over 53,000 people were said to have been impacted. And most of them were people of color. Mm. Uh, and so so, and and one way that it's changed, you know, as you know, I'm a f- former deputy chief in the Civil Rights Division Voting Section at the Department of Justice, and in the past, I should say, the uh, certainly the, the Civil Rights Division Voting Section was meant to enforce laws and to enforce certainly enforce the Voting Rights Act and other laws. And one of the things that the that the that the Department of Justice is doing now is Sending letters to states and other jurisdictions um, saying that they need to um look at their list maintenance procedures <laughs> and list maintenance is essentially you know we're that the you know jurisdictions have to election officials have to clean the voter rolls you like remove dead people, remove people who might. Uh, who would have been, who may have been found mentally incompetent, or have committed a disenfranchising felony in those uh, states that still remove people uh, for that for that purpose, and so the so you have the Department of Justice, you know, kind of threatening. In the Husted versus A. Philip Randolph Institute Supreme Court case, we saw that persons were being removed for not returning a postcard. Uh, and if you didn't return the postcard, then, um, um, you were removed or put on an inactive list. If you didn't vote in uh, federal elections, then you, um, were removed, right? So that's a way of purging people for not voting, right? For their inactivity. Uh, And then you have to have this re-registration process and those kinds of processes tend to, um, uh, certainly disproportionately impact people of color, uh, so we still we're seeing these uh, removals and these purges that are happening in different ways, certainly across the across the country.
0: So we often tell very simple stories about how the electorate expanded in the United States, and you debunk that in the book. it was not some sort of uh, you know um, a, a myth of of enfranchising. But you also encourage us to be very nuanced about which people of color we're talking about and to be attentive to the changing demographics in the United States and how they affect partisanship. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that.
1: Well, what I hoped to convey in the book is that these disenfranchising methods primarily impact communities of color, right? And certainly historically, uh, we've looked at the experience of African-Americans and particularly in the South. Um, But I wanted to um, expand our thinking. We need to consider how these changes and how these um, measures are impacting people of color uh, as a, as a whole. Right. And so that's also when we're thinking about, are we just talking about party (laughs) or are we talking about, uh, race, um, I think, in some of these instances, if we if we just limited to African Americans, and if you think about states like Florida, where mm-hmm. there's an impact on Native Americans, there's an impact on Asian Americans, <laughs> there's an impact on um, 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 Latinx Americans, and you know, African Americans. So, um, I think we certainly look at uh, how the changing demographics is prompting some of these changes, um, uh, that the increase in um, people of color uh, is certainly uh, prompting things like proof of citizenship laws and how they might uh, impact who gets to vote and, again, who has the power. Uh, So I think that's certainly something that we need to pay more attention to and um, that we, again, don't need to address uh, in a piecemeal fashion. But when we're talking about voter suppression, know uh, that, we're, that we, we need to, you know, talk beyond the Black-white binary, um, because it is, while that is very important and certainly a, p- a point that we have to make, not only historically, but contemporaneously, that Black and brown people are being impacted by these laws throughout the country.
0: So since this voter suppression is actually coming from our elected leaders these are these are measures being passed by state legislatures and as you've pointed out there've been changes in the justice department that would mean that uh, enforcement has uh, may have changed and also the supreme court has altered the way we interpret the voting rights act again which makes it harder so what might voters do about voter suppression, how, how might this become more of a concern? Would it, would it come from voter engagement? Would it come from a constitutional amendment or education? What, how is it that you see us going forward?
1: All of that. <laughs> so I think all of that, Susan. So certainly I ask, uh, ask people to do three things, well, and I've, I've increased it to four now. Educate, legislate, litigate, participate. Uh, educate, we need to educate ourselves about voting laws, uh, voting deadlines, registration deadlines. Uh, we need to educate ourselves about uh who's running for office, uh, what do we even know where the platforms are located, or do people even have platforms now as they as they run for office? Uh, but knowing who the candidates are, what they're running for, I'd say when I talk to people that more people can tell me the names of Kim and Kanye's children—they can tell me who their city council member is. Uh,
0: <laughs> and, yeah, no.
1: No. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and so we certainly need to edu- educate ourselves about the process. Um, we need to know what legislation has been passed or is being being proposed uh, that can impact our our right to vote. Um, we need to. Partner with organizations like Advancement Project, where I serve as the uh, litigation director uh, and uh, other organizations that are fighting certainly for uh, the right to vote. Uh, and working with those uh, organizations, we're currently, we're currently litigating a case along with Latino Justice, Burl Def, and Demos in Florida on, um, uh, on, on the COVID-19 and voting rights um, and how COVID-19 is impacting um, voting rights in the state of Florida. Um, so and educate, it's- yes, educate, legislate, litigate, and participate. And participate, I, I'm encouraging people to sign up as poll workers now, right? So, so you can be in um, the room and making sure that uh, discrimination is not taking place, right? That pe- that uh, certain people, I've, I've served as a federal observer While I was at the Department of Justice, uh, and you know, some the stories where only certain people were being asked for ID, right, or people of color were being asked for ID, or black people were being asked for ID, but not white people, or Hispanic people were being asked or uh, for ID, but not white people, right? So if you're if you're an election official, if you're a poll worker, Mm -hmm. a person who's Asking people for their ID or asking people for their name so that they can uh, access the ballot box. I think that's certainly something that I encourage. I encourage people to sign up as poll workers because that's needed. And we're certainly we've seen with this COVID nineteen situation that we, you know, the the what I used to call the gray haired ladies are the people who are working the <laughs> working the uh, polling places. They are now um, certainly saw in the, in the primaries, many of them are saying I'm not showing up for work because of the um, COVID-19 because of the potential to contract um, coronavirus. So uh, we need younger people. uh, And certainly as we, as we have these machines that are more digitized and computerized, we need younger people to assist and volunteer and work um, Uh, As poll workers. So those are certain things that and and things that I um, encourage people to do as well as working with um, election protection uh, to ensure that um, as we learn about these barriers, um, particularly on Election Day, that we can work to offset them and ensure that everybody has the right to vote.
0: Well, it is a beautifully written, incredibly rich yet easy-to-read book, Um, and I enjoyed it tremendously. I think it works for scholars in the field. I think it's accessible to students. It's certainly accessible to anybody who has an interest in these topics, Um, and the footnoting is so is so rich that anything, and even when you know everything about a topic, and in some cases I know a lot about what you're writing about here, I found so much going on that it was such a pleasure, and thank you so much for sharing the book with us today. What are you working on now? I know you've got, um, I know you're litigating, but uh, (laughs) do you have another book in the works as well? I don't have another book another book uh, in the work. I'm sure there's one that's
1: coming (laughs) that will soon come right now, uh, just uh, working on uh, kind of breaking through the COVID noise to uh, continue to sound the alarm that, hey, we need to pay attention <laughs> to uh, what's going on and continue to work to eliminate these uh, barriers to the ballot um, and working on some uh, law review articles uh, and other other smaller pieces. Um, but I will certainly let you know when I have my uh, next book project um, uh, ready. And uh, uh, certainly uh, published.
0: Well, we'll definitely be looking for it. Um, Readers, I recommend Uncounted: The Crisis of Voter Expression in America, published by New York University Press, uh, available widely. You can get it on bookshop.org, which I'm encouraging readers supports your now closed independent booksellers and. Uh, It's also available on the usual providers, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and the New York University uh, Press website as well. So um, thank you so much for taking the time out, Gilda, to talk with us today. And and good luck with the litigating. And I I personally felt very inspired to sign up as a poll worker and uh, here in my town. So wonderful, it's, it's, it's an effective book. Thank you so much.